It's time for Security Now. This is a fun one. We do this every other episode. You get to ask questions. Steve answers. He'll explain all about the SSL security myth and more. It's coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 340, recorded February 15th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 137. Security Now is brought to you by Ford, featuring the EcoBoost engine with turbocharger and direct injection. Look for EcoBoost on the 2012 Explorer and Edge, the 2013 Escape, and at Ford.com slash technology. It's time for Security Now. Get ready to fasten your seatbelts and protect yourself on the information superhighway with this man, our explainer-in-chief, Mr. Stephen T. Gibson. <laughs> Steve, Explainer-in-chief. Explainer-in-chief. Steve's the uh, man in charge at GRC.com, the creator of Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance utility, and many other free security utilities, and joins us every week to talk about uh, all these issues. It's a Q&A episode. Is that right, Steve? It's a Q&A episode, and we have a, just a, a flurry, a flurry of news has landed on us this last week. Uh, a bunch of it recently, some really interesting things. A bunch of people have picked up on a report from a paper that was released in advance of the conference, which is not till August. The paper was released because the researchers felt it was too important for them to sit on, which is an analysis of the the public and private key system, which we've spoken of many times. I mean, I don't know if there's even an episode of Security Now where we don't talk about SSL and, and this. It turns out that the random number generators, which have been used to generate these, and we depend upon their randomness, uh, they're not so random. It's pseudo-random. It's not good. So um, anyway, there's been uh, actually a lot of misinformation about this, uh, even in I mean, even from some well-known tech writers who have said that there are flaws with the SSL system. Well, there have been some, but that this is not one. This is a particular implementation problem. And, you know, we've we often discuss these fine points like what 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 does that actually mean relative to there being a a problem with the system to have a problem with its implementation of course those are two very different things from a security standpoint um so lots of neat news we did have a a second tuesday just past us um microsoft did uh a their typical batch of of updates these are important there they did uh nine Different updates, which closed 21 security holes. I noticed I, I hesitated there because I had a typo in my own notes. I said nice updates, <laughs> closing 21 security holes instead of nine. Um, four of them are remote code execution, 
critical rating, so no effort required on the part of a user to get their systems compromised. So this is oh, and Microsoft is is thinking that you know they have that weird new um, term they use for. The, the, it's the exploitability index. And so they're saying that 12, about half of these are going to be readily exploitable. So this is not something you want to sit on. Uh, you know, here we're recording this the day after these all came out yesterday. So this is, you know, this is a update your machines and reboot them as are probably good, as will probably be required. Um, and you can feel at least a little bit safer. Um, Adobe did a critical shockwave update. We don't run across shockwave that much, and that's good news because it's pretty much an obsolete technology. I think every time I say that, I guess I'm talking, I I was going to say, every time I say something, Elaine reminds me that she's still stuck using it, but it's not shockwave. You know, Elaine, our illustrious transcriber, who actually will be referring to at the very end of the show because we have a bonus unintended consequence of something that happened, uh, which I got a kick out of last week that I'll share with our, our audience. Anyway, but, but she's using that horrible, obsolete audio format. Oh, real media. She's, she uses real media for some reason um, to do her, her podcast transcribing. I think the, her, her player, maybe it like runs with, with foot switches or something that, that she needs to have. But anyway, in this case, Shockwave, if you don't need it, you want to get rid of it, um, you can go to adobe.com slash shockwave slash welcome, and it will tell you if it's installed. And if it's not installed, that's good news. Don't install it. If it is, then you definitely want to update it because they fix some problems. And unfortunately, this is the kind of thing where if it's installed and not being blocked, for example, by NoScript on Firefox or ScriptNo over on Chrome, um, and, and blocking is good, of course. If it's not blocked, then this is the kind of thing that where drive-by um, websites are able to infect you or or targeted email where you click the link and that is able to load some funky shockwave file that leverages a known exploitable problem in order to execute code on your computer. And later in this podcast, we talk about, we answer a question from someone who's just can't seem to keep from getting his family infected all the time. They're, or they're <laughs> infecting themselves. And he's like, what can I do about this? So uh, I can't help myself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's take a break and come back. We have security news. Uh, somebody in the chat room saying, has Steve seen this spray-on antenna thing? Yes, Steve has. <laughs> and he will talk about that. And, of course, we've got questions and your answers as well. Uh, that's spray on. I can't wait to hear you talk about that. And I, we, well, we'll we'll talk about it in a second because yep. we passed around and we, we, we got some impressions from our hams and... Anyway, before we do that, let's talk a little bit about our friends at the Ford Motor Company. You know I'm a fan. Drive my Mustang. I do not have an EcoBoost engine. <laughs> I kind of wish I did. What is that? Uh, this is uh, it's engine technology from Ford. The idea is that you get the power of a larger engine in a smaller one. So it's a conventional uh, gas engine. Remember, there's a lot of, uh, you know, Ford wants to improve gas uh, economy for sure. I mean, nobody's out there ready to buy an eight-mile-a-gallon uh, 
car anymore, yet people still want, you know, power. I did drive an EcoBoost engine in the SHO, and it was very impressive. They do this uh, by reducing the number of cylinders to improve efficiency. I'll but then turn them off. Huh? They, they actually turn them off. Yeah. And then they compensate for the loss of horsepower and torque through a combination of direct injection, turbocharging, twin turbocharging, in fact. The DI direct injection produces a cooler, denser charge. I know you guys are technical, so I'm going to read this technical stuff. You are you into engines, Steve? It seems no, like you no, might have been like a I, hot rodder. I built my car. That's my, what my I thought. First, tore, tore it all down to bits all over the garage and thought, oh, I hope I know where this all <laughs> goes. Why did I know that about you? I just had that feeling that you were that kind of guy. I got a ticket for speeding, actually, not long after. This was a little Fiat 850 Spider, little, you know, thing. And I was shooting up the freeway, actually upset after a a breakup with a girlfriend oh. and I got pulled over by the CHP and he first of all he sort of walks around the car and looks at it and then he <laughs> you know I roll down the window and he could t- he looking at my face you know he shined the flashlight in my face and he could tell that I was frankly I had been crying and uh oh. was upset and he said are you all right and I said well yeah I mean I wasn't going to drag him into my problems I'm not sure I'm dra- why I'm dragging our listeners in, but um, <laughs> and he said, "Do you know how fast you were going?" <laughs> and this is after I'd like re-engineered the way it worked a little right. bit. I made some improvements when I put it back together, and I I said, uh, "No, I really don't." And he said, "I didn't think these could go that fast." <laughs> it's a Fiat. <laughs> Steve invented the EcoBoost engine. Many people don't <laughs> don't know that. Uh, direct injection, you probably already know this, uh, produces a cooler, denser charge. You know, that's, of course, the fuel charge that uh, the piston then, uh, you know, they fired in the piston that generates more power per drop of fuel. The two small engine-cooled turbochargers spool up more quickly than a single large turbo. So there's all these little things that make a huge difference. Energy from the engine's exhaust, which is otherwise wasted, rotates those turbine wheels, and each turbine is coupled to a compressor. That pressurizes the incoming air, which increases the output per liter. You can tell I'm reading this, but Steve, I think you, I think you know what it means. So the result, the end result, is instantaneous low-end torque responsiveness, no turbo lag. You don't hit the pedal and then wait. Uh, it's, I mean, it just, it's very responsive. And I did notice that in the SHO. I was so impressed. Look for the 2.0-liter EcoBoost engine on the 2012 Explorer and Edge. The new Escape in 2013 will offer a 1.6-liter and 2.0-liter EcoBoost option. And uh, you can always learn more about this and everything else at the website. I'm on it right now, Ford.com slash technology. I'll give you an example, 28 highway miles per gallon on the uh, 2-liter EcoBoost engine. In a, and that's in a big vehicle, the Explorer, the Edge. It's really impressive. So I like it because Ford isn't just examining, you know, alternative fuel technologies. They're taking what we got. Because in many areas, you, you know, gas is the only practical alternative and, um, and making it more efficient and more fun to drive. And that's really fun. I'll tell you, when I got in that SHO, I was choosing between SHO and a Mustang. And, I t- and you just tap the pedal and boom. It's so the uh, it's amazing the amount of torque they're getting out of these engines. Ford.com slash technology. But you know the best way? Go right now to a Ford dealer and drive one today. All right, moving along. We've got technology news, Mr. G. I, I should mention I misspoke, Leo. I, I actually did not get a ticket. He he took pity on me because he could see how upset yeah. I was. Yeah. 
and I was close to home. And he said, just, just get home and, and yeah. don't drive that car like that ever again. <laughs> Remember, it's a Fiat. <laughs> and drive it appropriately. Not a missile. Uh, anyway, okay. so tech so, news. So, okay, top of the list here is, quote, you know, many, many websites have miscovered the story. It's a complicated story, so, you know, I don't fault them. But for our listeners who are equally technical and able to understand these subtle differences, it's important that we not throw the baby out with the bathwater. It has been claimed that flaws were found in SSL's public key encryption, which did not happen. Uh, What happened, however, was really interesting, which is that through an analysis of the actual keys, the public keys in use on the Internet, a, a bunch of researchers discovered that they were not as random as we all assumed they would be. Well, that's so, kind of interesting. Oh, it's really – oh, no, this is really interesting because there are some, there, there are some consequences to this. Okay, so and, – and, you know, it's, I love how we're always talking about things in the show that end up tying into things that happen afterwards. Because just last week, Leo, you and I were talking about um, the, the scarcity or, or lack thereof of random no, – of of prime numbers right. and how and how as we know the whole public key technology or at least the RSA style is because there are different kinds of public key there's like there's there's Diffie Hillman and DSA and elliptic curve and, and other ways of of having asymmetric keys where the keys are different one you encrypt with and one you decrypt with as opposed to symmetric keys where you use one for both. Um, Okay, so the RSA style, it relies on the fact that it is very difficult to, to factor numbers. That is, really, really, really big numbers. They're just, no matter how much time has been spent and how much smartage has been aimed at it, Smartage? Smartage. That's a good been, word. I'm using that from been now. <laughs> drinking coffee since 5 a.m. No matter how much smartage is aimed at at the problem, there's we've had no breakthroughs, no ser- serious breakthroughs in in factorization. Now we're getting better at it. We're creeping forward. For example, five twelve bit numbers have been factored 768 bit numbers have been factored and it's expected that we're probably not too far away from 1024 bit numbers which is why in general there's some pressure moving the industry towards 2048 bit numbers doubling again the size of these numbers which we're going to be asked to factor but the point is that we take two large primes and multiply them together in order to get this the 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 product of those primes and and that's the operation which is not easily 
reversible, by which I mean we don't know how to un, we don't know how to reverse that. So we rely upon these two the unknowability of both of the primes in order for that to be the secret. So so the the it is the secret part is what were those two primes? They're multiplied together and and that's what's used to produce the public key of our whole public key crypto system. That's what any web any web server sends to us when it wants to establish an SSL connection. It sends us its public key and and we're able then to use that to 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 verify that it was signed by someone we trust so we trust this this certificate and we use the public key in order to encrypt something that we send back to the server and only the server that has the private the matching private keys which are those two prime numbers essentially is able to decrypt what we sent and that's how we solve the problem of the man in the middle getting involved the man in the middle saw the public key go by, but has no way of intercepting what we're sending back, which is encrypted using that public key. Only the private key can decrypt it. So here's the problem. If the original random primes are not very random, then the whole system sort of falls apart. I mean, it, it's the technology, the concept, everything we're fundamentally relying on in terms of the mechanics are fine. But the assumption that nobody could guess the primes, if, if that isn't valid, if they're not really good randomly chosen primes, then something, you know, a, a requirement for security falters. And what the researchers found by looking at many, many millions of public keys, remember, that's what the servers are sending. So anytime you're hooking up to a web server, part of that SSL negotiation is, here's my public key, use this to send me stuff that nobody else can decrypt. That's how how it works. So all the SSL connections, all the HTTPS connections everywhere are proudly broadcasting their public key. And when you look in your web browser, you, you, if you have an SSL, you know, an HTTPS connection, when you check the, the security certificate, one of the things listed there proudly is the public key. Well, That's you know... Uh- I use out there in the open. Yeah, I use PGP to sign my email, and the beauty of using PGP to sign your email is, I literally can offer for download my public key. Anybody can have it. You want it? I'll give it to you. It doesn't help you in any way in decrypting my email. It only lets you encrypt to me. Now, what they found was an unexpectedly large number of collisions. Essentially, they found instances where with with and with no apparent common affiliations. That is, it wasn't like the, all the bad keys came from one particular certificate authority. One one CA was issuing these. Nor 
was their correlation over time. They looked at the issuing dates and the expiration dates. And it's not so it's not like they they were bad and they were getting better or they were good and they and they got worse. They're just there wasn't a correlation a, a variation over time or source, but there were collisions in the prime numbers that were used to generate the public keys. And what this means is the reason this is a problem is say take JR, GRC. Now it happens I've got a 2048 public key because I recently, as we all know, switched to an, an extended validation EV certificate when I moved from VeriSign over to DigiCert. And so I'm, I'm in better shape. Uh, largely the collisions are occurring in the, in the, in the larger population of 1024-bit keys. But so you take a website, a, a webmaster who knows what their public key is. Well, it turns out that there is a much greater chance than we expected of being able to find another website out there somewhere with the same public key. No one ever looked for them before. Turns out there's collisions. And the, and so the problem is, if I were to find another website with the same public key as mine, I know their private key. Oh, that's not good. No. <laughs> that's not good. No. So that's, that's I, what this means. I wonder if the same holds true for PGP. I mean, because... I'll, yes. I, oh, and, and I'll tell you why this is there? an issue, because the PGP key servers hold millions of people's public keys. What you do is you upload your public key to this directory. So it would be yes. trivial to download and search it. Yes. And their oh, paper, boy. their their paper, uh, I don't think I tweeted this recently. So, um, it's e I didn't know e if it, IACR org Slash. 2012-064.pdf. Oh, that's easy. Well, it's yeah. easier than a 16-bit prime, but... Yeah, it actually is pretty, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty easy. Anyway, their paper, they, they, they address PGP explicitly because, as you say, Leo, there are there is such a huge database of existing keys. And there were uh, PGP collisions Oy. as well. Oy. Yeah. So, I mean, th this isn't the end of the world. Now, what now, they found, now, yeah, what they found was I'm scared, but, but I think I use a passphrase to unlock my PGP. Wouldn't they need the passphrase even if they had the private key? I haven't looked at it closely enough to say. Oh boy! What I what I can tell you is that two out of every thousand yikes key. I know that's too that's high. More, that's too high. Two out of every thousand. So that is, that means it's 0.2% are, that's, that's are insecure. So all you'd have to find is a match in the PGP database. Yep. And then you would know that person's private key. Ah, uh, but you know. To spoof. So you generate. Okay, so I'll generate a key. I know the private and I know the public. Now I search for a match for that public key. And uh, it, uh, let's say there's a million keys in the database, which there probably are, that means what I have several thousand private no, keys no, that no. I can messages. I, no, no, no. Um, th this also re remember that 
um, that we also have the birthday attack phenomenon going on. Remember that yes. the birthday attack is not my birthday collides with one other person's, but in a population, yes. somebody's two birthdays collide. So it isn't the case that if I just generate a key that that 0.02% or whatever it is will match my key. Right. Oh, then that's, right. I'm not so worried. Right. It's that there is, but between be all of these yeah. 7 million websites that they analyzed, or rather 7 million public keys, they found a, a statistical anomaly. There should never have been that many collisions, which, and what that told them was, and here we come back to it, what that told them was the random number generators which are being used to create the which are being used to find the primes are not being seeded correctly they're not being seeded with sufficient entropy so so i mean th you know looking at the technology they don't think that the random number generators are bad but remember it is we've talked about this extensively it is very difficult to to get really random data out of computers because they're all about not being random. They're just math boxes. Right. They Every time you put in the same stuff, you're going to get this, exactly the same stuff out. And so, you know, lots of work has been done in trying to make these things random. And, and what I think what we're seeing is that certificate authorities ought to be one place where huge huge amounts of money is spent on on generating much higher quality sources of randomness they shouldn't be relying on moving someone's mouse around in a circle for a while which you know is what what truecrypt tells us to do in order to get a, a sufficient randomness for our hard drive key i mean these guys ought to be you know, listening to Geiger tube sparks and watching lava lamps move and, you know, put video cameras of mice in mazes. I mean, everything they could think of at the same time to suck in <laughs> entropy, <you> know, <laughs> as much entropy as they yeah. can find. And and then, you know, you know, aim a camera at static on an old style TV with its antenna disconnected and digitize that. I mean, just everything you can think of. You know, this is where we want money spent on generating the highest quality random numbers possible. Um, so what happened is the researchers notified the sources of these archives and they have been taken offline because they would be too useful for bad guys. And where possible, they have notified the owners where they were able to backtrack. They've notified the owners of the, of the worst, the least secure keys. And because certificates can have things like email addresses in them. They don't have to, but they can. So, so they've, they've, they've tried to do, they've tried to be responsible They've also not issued the the more um, <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to make up another word now. Uh, smartage, more smartage, <laughs> the more disclosable or <laughs> disclosable. Uh, they have two different. They have two versions of their paper. They've got a tamed down one 
that they where they which is the only one that's out today where they explain this, but they also say uh, there's more that we're not saying yet because we need to gently introduce this problem to the industry so that there's some opportunity for people to fix this problem, and presumably they've got a more a, a more in depth. Uh, paper, we know they do, where they explain in more detail what they've done. The problem is for, you know, the really smart bad guys who just get off on on reverse engineering these tidbits of information, they've really got all they need. So anyway, this isn't the end of the world. The sky's not falling. Um, I don't even really think that there's anything individual website operators need to do they they say in their paper that they consider producing a service where website owners could submit their certificates and check them to see if they're vulnerable or not but the problem is there's no way to prevent that from being abused because then the bad guys would collect public keys just to harvest them from the net and run them through and and see whether they're vulnerable or not. So um, I'm glad that I moved up to 2048-bit keys or certificates recently. 2048-bit certs are not invulnerable, but there's vastly lower collision incident, incidents uh, because there aren't that many of them yet relative to the, the 1024-bit keys, which are, are more vulnerable just because of, you know, like I said, the birthday attack problem there's just so many more opportunities for for two of them to collide i do so, have to reiterate uh what what i said before and i was really glad you clarified this uh and maybe it's difficult to understand if you're not a, a math whiz but there's a significant difference between me generating a number and two out of a thousand other uh keys matching and two two out of a random thousand matching significant difference so much so that it's not probably a cause for concern it doesn't it doesn't mean that a bad guy can then generate a pgp key or an ssl certificate and then look in the database for matches and find that many hits he won't right i don't know what the, the actual number is but it'll be significantly lower yeah, in fact, you 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 would. It's much more likely that if you took a key and checked it, there would be no collision. Right. That is, no one given key will collide, and that's that's what the birthday attack. That's the reason it's such a surprise. It confuses to people. people. Yes. Yes. So it's a it's an old uh, it's a great probability thing where you take I think it's thirty six people in a room. The chances are that two of them, some two of them, will have the same birthday. You would you would think it'd be three hundred sixty five. Um, but that's different than if you said, how many people would have to be in a room to collide with my birthday? Very different Correct. number. Very right. different number. So I, I, I don't know if that clarifies things or muddies them, but that's, that's, that's a significant difference. Yeah. So we need 23 not panic. people in a room. Okay. Yeah. 23. And, and it's, yeah. And so any two will have the same birthday right. and as opposed to the probability of, of how many people in the room to have the probability be at least even that your birthday would My be birthday. shared with somebody else. Right. Very much larger number. Right. Yeah. So um, anyway, so not the end of the world, not a cause for any great alarm. Um, we'll see how this evolves. The, the EFF 
and their SSL observatory have been working with these guys. Um, they've they generated a fresh restart of their observatory at the beginning of the year. So it's only four or five weeks old at this point, or I guess maybe six weeks old at this point. And they've already seen that pro- this problem exists in all the certificates they've collected since. So, I mean, this is, this is a, a problem. The good news is it'll, it will end up being, it'll drain out of our, of our currency in the, in the same way that I'm glad that certificates expire, which is certainly the certificate authorities who are issuing these certs. This is a big deal for them. You know, they, they absolutely need to focus their attention somewhere they haven't before, which is on the entropy of the, of the primes they're using to generate certificates. That's where we need to have this fixed. Then within two or three years, the certificates will, all the certificates in use now will have expired and have automatically been replaced with ones with ultra high entropy, you know, fully high entropy prime numbers. And then we'll be okay. It's not much of an attack. No. All right. Just no. checking. So I meant to mention this last week, and I just I hadn't. It, didn't, it wasn't in my notes, and of course, if it's not written down in the, you know, I'm not going to see it. it doesn't but exist. We did get information from Symantec about the mistake that was made in PC Anywhere, and it's so classic that our listeners are are their eyes are going to roll back in their heads. <laughs> Okay, okay, description. Yes. Symantec has released a patch to address a vulnerability in its PC, and, and this is quoting Symantec, address a vulnerability in its PC Anywhere product. PC Anywhere consists of a server and a client that allows a user to connect to a computer and control it remotely. The server component accepts requests for authentication on port 5631 and copies the user-controlled, that is to say the user-provided username in these requests uh, to a fixed-length 264-byte buffer. By sending an overlong username, an attacker can exploit this buffer overflow... In order to execute arbitrary code on the target's machine with system level privileges. Wow. It doesn't get any more cut and dried than that. I mean, this is so brain dead. This is so, you know, security programming 101. So they have, they allocate a short 264 byte buffer. Then they accept a username of any size and blindly copy it into the buffer. So, and the buffer is probably allocated on the stack, which means that they, and in the past we have, we did a podcast in that in an excruciating detail explained how when the buffer overruns, it copies over the history of things like the where you where you were called from so that when this routine which is doing the checking 
attempts to return to its caller, it takes that information from the stack, which was stacked before the buffer, which means you're able to, if you cleverly design this data, you're able to cause the execution to return to your own data on the stack. If the stack is protected from being executed, there are still ways you can cause the stack to return you to other code in the system, which you reuse for your own purposes. So, you know, it, it's, it can be made more difficult. Over time, it has been made more difficult to exploit stack-based code. But, you know, these are very powerful, very flexible computers. And pretty much where there's a will, there's a way. And so this all starts with a, a system that accepts a response from the user without checking its length and just copies it into a buffer without making sure it doesn't overwrite. Mm. And that's what's going on with PC Anywhere. So anyone who's using it definitely wants to update to the latest version. Yes, yes. And I should mention also we talked about this long ago, but port 5631, this is a classic instance of where you absolutely don't want to use the default port because 5631 is something, for example, that that I've checked at GRC for, um, for users to make sure they didn't have that open. It's, you, you definitely want to change the port number of your own instance of PC Anywhere to something else, anything else, because bad guys are out there scanning the net now looking for anything that answers on port 5631. Chances are it's going to be PC Anywhere, and then they'll exploit this in order to uh, run code on that system, that, that PC Anywhere server. So you definitely don't want to leave that default port. Also in the news, I'm sure you saw this, Leo, was the all the kerfuffle uh, that arose over Google's wallet pin. Hmm. Yes. What was, what was disclosed was um, that there was a vulnerability in jailbroken versions of some smartphones that had the Google Wallet installed on them. And I think there was another requirement such that it was actually only two of Google's phones where this was actually a vulnerability. Um, and the problem was that there's a four-digit PIN which protects the privacy of the data stored in the wallet. Things like uh, your credit card number, which you'd like to have privacy protected. Yeah. And what Google does is they do an SHA-256. Now, that, 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 that's a hash, as we know. It's a very, very good hash. The problem is they store it in the phone. That is, they don't take the pin and go check in with some central authority somewhere. They wanted to avoid the need to do that. They wanted to allow you to unlock your wallet locally without checking in. Well, all of our crypto-savvy listeners understand the problem of that. It's like, okay, that can't be secure. There, if you're, you know, I mean, it can't be infinitely secure. 
you're, you enter a four-digit PIN, which you hash into a 256-bit token. But then you got to check it against the token which is stored in the phone. So if it's jailbroken and the bad guys have access to the database, then they've got your 256 hat, your SHA-256 hash of your PIN. And here's the problem. It's only four digits, which means it's easy to brute force. I'm sure there are tables of all, what are they? What, 10,000 only. I mean, we, we talked about the problem of four digits not long ago with the whole WPS problem. So, so what this means is that anybody who, if, if there's malware in a jailbroken phone, it has access to your, your Google Wallet's SHA-256-bit hash. It can get it and instantly or quickly figure out what the matching four-digit pin is. Then they've got the four-digit pin for your wallet. And that's not good. Not good. Yeah. So not good. It's, the, the problem is that it's being, it's being stored local. And Google says, well, we, you know, we told you jailbreaking is not safe. And, you know, they're right. <clears throat> so, you know, I, I, I don't really hold Google at fault for this. There's really nothing they can do if they want to allow you to unlo- unlock your wallet without sending off your authentication somewhere else. Now, they could use something much more sophisticated, much more complex than four digits. One of the weaknesses here is that it's just a four-digit pin, so it's easy to brute force all 10,000, you know, 0, 0, 0, 0 to 9999. There's just not that many. You do the SHA-256 of that, and so you, you have a lookup table that converts that back to the pin, and so that's the problem. So if users used much more comp- – were allowed to use much more complex passwords for their wallets, then that would secure them against this particular attack. But it's still going to be a problem. So I would say don't jailbreak. Okay, huh. um, I can't Google. And then Google uh, turned off the NFC capability in the wallet until they fixed this. So there, there will be a fix, right? I, um, or is there? Is this not possible? Is this I don't in the see how it's possible. It? Oh. If if malware has access to that database, which which jailbreaking it affords, right. then you've got a problem. Hmm. Yeah. Too bad. I I would hope maybe what they'll do is is give you the option of better protection than four digits. Right. Four digits is just not enough. Longer pin. And five digits would be a lot better. Six digits. I mean, it. Well, I would get away from from digits. Digits Um, is a bad choice. Yeah. Yeah, because you know it restricts your alphabet to to a ten character to a ten character alphabet. You'd like to just be able to use for your wallet a. You know what we all know as a strong password. Use use the haystack technology. The idea being that you want you want to you. I mean, first of all, if you've got malware in a jailbroken phone, well, you're screwed for would, so many other reasons anyway. Yes, I, I, so I don't think anyone should be using any sort of local 
and no one should be relying on local encryption on a jailbroken device because it it does allow malware access to to much more of your device than is safe so you know if you want to do play with a jailbroken phone fine just don't store anything important there on that same phone Get another toy. To I, I, need, play I need a clarification. Jailbreaking is a term used on the iPhone. We're talking about Android okay. phones. We call it rooting. And I, now ah. there's two things. That on an iPhone, jailbreaking means you can get apps from third-party sources. You do not need to do that on Android. It's just a checkbox. Is that sufficient? In other words, just downloading malware, is that sufficient? Or does the malware have to have additional permissions? Now I'm confused, so I hope I haven't given everybody a bum steer. Well, it's just I, it's a, unclear from the terminology they use, not you. Yeah, okay, because I was sure that what I was seeing was that that people were doing something to their Android devices to, so I guess, rooting them. It is must be that the, rooting, because root, once you root your phone, a application then can ask for super user permissions, and I would guess that yes. it would be the combination of downloading a third party from a third party source some malware and then yes. allowing that malware to have root permissions i should tell you that you are notified when an application requests and is given root permissions i i don't believe they can do that silently so it could just be it it it, it could be an application which you don't suspect is malicious yes. that you you voluntarily give permission to because you want whatever happy service it's going to give you which needs root and then in fact behind the scenes it's able to right you know access things and you know and so that's just a dangerous thing to do and there is there's, a log uh there's a program that you get when you root a phone called super user that gives a log of all apps that have requested permissions and what permissions they've requested and so forth um so as long I, as one of the permissions is not rewriting the log well, that's true, too. There may be an issue yeah. there, yeah. So yeah. it sounds like the advice, then, is do not root your Android phone. Or, or if you do the, so, be very careful about what apps you put on there. Exactly. Yeah. If you're going to root your phone, then you really don't want to rely on, on an encryption of sensitive data right. on that phone. I routinely uh, use uh, root my, almost all my Android phones because there are apps, backup apps, chiefly, that you need root, root access for backing up, titanium being one. Right. Um, okay, that's good. This is all good information. It sounds like it's not fixable. I just you. I just don't think it is. There is. There is. You. you it, it's exactly the like the problem of you know the the movie industry trying to encrypt DVDs. We we got to right. decrypt the keys them. Keys have to um, live. Yeah. Yes, the keys have to be there, and so and clear. It's. I just don't see how the how it's how it's solvable except. What you really should have is a, a much stronger password than just the four-digit PIN. I'm surprised that's all they have, actually. Yeah. You know, on the phone itself, Android gives you many choices of alf both alphanumeric numeric, and they have a gesture-based password, which I use. Um, that would be, I presume, stronger than numeric. Anything would be, would yeah. be better than four digits. Yeah. Okay, so it would. This might be, you know, a fix that Google could implement or somebody could implement with the super user app. You know, the super user app can be set to block access. That you have to explicitly give permission each and every time an app requests it. You might then ask for a gesture, for instance, to unlock it, um, which I think would then certainly increase security significantly. I would think, but I don't know. All right, sorry, I didn't mean to slow you down. I just want yeah, to get some no, clarification yeah, on that because no I problem. routinely. 
<laughs> Turn on root. Are, are you a Google Wallet user? I am not because I don't have NFC. There's only a couple of phones that have NFC currently. Uh, oh, I guess you could yeah. use Wallet without NFC. So anyway, yeah. but I don't know. I don't That's... use Google Wallet. I use a similar thing, though, that might be similarly uh, crackable from Square. It's called Car case, Card Case. It's wonderful. I walk into my local coffee shop. I make an order. And then uh, it's I say, put it on my tab, and they have an iPad with my name and picture on it. And they say, oh, good, we'll add it to your tab. Because I've been sensed by uh, geofencing to have come into the store. Wow, that's cool. It's really cool. Yeah. However, I probably is even more susceptible <laughs> to these kinds of attacks. <sighs> okay, so um, I tweeted... Something that I thought was interesting, uh, just because it caught my eye, which was um, someone did an analysis of the speed of browsing with and without web tracking. And they used standard tools like NoScript on Firefox. Um, and in fact, after this, somebody told me they were playing with ScriptNo on Chrome and and verified for themselves the same thing, which is... Not protecting yourself from web tracking, not blocking trackers, slows your browser load time often by as much as a factor of two. So popular websites, which are just loading down your browser with all kinds of junk, are really, I mean, they're not only causing a privacy threat, but a serious performance bottleneck. Me mean, measurable and as much as a factor of two, sometimes even more. So uh, Patrick Dubois tweeted the note to me, and so I wanted to thank him. And I, uh, I tweeted it out and it generated some attention in my Twitter stream. So I wanted to make sure our listeners knew that you know, not only is all this blocking we talk about doing good for you from a privacy standpoint, but really does accelerate your use of the net. Um, Moxie Marlinspike, our... Uh, wonderfully pseudonymed hacker uh, introduced just a day or two ago a new password cracking service called cloudcracker.com. Maybe you can bring it up before the, everybody who's listening to this does that, Leo. Uh, yeah, could, well, I'm hurrying now right now. <laughs> cloudcracker.com. Can I type faster than the twit listener? Apparently I can. Um, maybe he's got a lot of horsepower there. It's a very nice-looking site, um, and it's just about as disturbing as anything could be. <laughs> for uh, oh, it's not free, but I think it's seventeen dollars an hour. For some reason, that number sticks in my yeah. mind. I, I don't it's have it. Run your network handshake against three hundred million words for in twenty minutes for seventeen dollars. Yep. So you capture somebody else's uh, traffic off out of the air, which is to say the network handshake. And you up you in, into a file, a capture file. You upload it to Moxie's <laughs> new cloud-based holy you know, cow, su uh huh, supercomputer. It's quite nicely done. It's a very Web 2.0 site. <laughs> very attractive. Yep. Wow. So this is cloud-based password cracking, and uh, for you know not much money. He will crank, he'll turn loose. I don't know if he's using EC3, you know, elastic cloud computing from Amazon or what service. Probably. How yeah. many, yeah. you know, but, you know, he fires up uh, a bunch of technology to work on cracking the password 
by doing brute force dictionary attack against it and, uh, you know, let you know what the password is. If awesome. You, you know, yeah. In case you forget. So, just FYI. <laughs> yeah. Cloudcracker.com. Yay. Thank you, Mark. And then Twitter uh, stepped their protection up another notch. We covered some months ago when they had offered SSL optionally. They just announced in a blog posting a couple days ago that HTTPS connections are now the default for Twitter's when you're on their website. So right on, yay Daddy-o. and bravo. Yeah. Another real, I mean, we need to see that universally. And as soon as I get some time, I'm going to do that myself. Um, okay. Now, I tweeted the URL for this video. So, it, and it's, it's uh, not easy to say it live, so I won't try to. It's a YouTube video. So just go to twitter.com slash sggrc. And it's only a few. It's only a tweet or two back, so you should find it easily. About an amazing-looking spray-on antenna system. This is a, a solve for X series that uh, Google does. I think it's Google that does this. Um, we solve for X dot com. Very and professional. A lot of great stuff on there. Yes. So uh, this is a fascinating, by the way, don't be put off by his presentation because he's a little shy and stumbling, but. Yeah, well, he he's apparently the engineer yeah, who was involved in this. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a geek. And and so in my tweet, I said, you know, I, I, I said something about, you know, the guy's not the greatest presenter, but at about five minutes in to this video, your mouth will fall open <laughs> and it will stay open for the rest of the video now uh, now admit, i know solve for x is legitimate and they have great people like nick negroponte and neil stevenson and just wonderful it's kind of had, like tedx had, uh, in yes, a way it's right very tedx like and they had they had the google guys on and uh, i mean so i mean it's clearly this is not a hoax right um so, but I gotta I, ask this. It doesn't seem possible. So, what he's got <laughs> is a spray-on material with nano capacitors, and there's a close-up microphotograph of it, and and it is true that capacitors conduct AC and block DC. Yeah, and radio frequency is AC. So. This would be a conductive surface under the influence of radio frequency. And so what I mean, they're doing is they're painting this stuff on trees, buildings, all sorts of stuff and well, it turns and I, it into an antenna. The, the picture of the wires connected to the tree trunk. That's a funny <laughs> one. Uh, oh. Yeah. No, but the guy is very deadpan. If we're to believe the video, and you know, we'll we all have to may have some healthy skepticism here. But you, I mean, if it's a hoax, it's the most beautifully perpetrated hoax I've seen in a long time. I don't think he it's claims a hoax. that this tree thing was an army, a U.S. Army test. They're doing this for the the department, uh, the military. And he talks about twenty dB of gain. That's a factor of a hundred. Yeah. I mean, 20 dB is nothing to shake a stick at. It's 
and I mean, and they they talk about having duplicated their measurements, and the army was involved, and and they used the the, the army's antenna, and then they sprayed a tree. <laughs> Here, here's the uh, – somebody said, well, oh. gee, uh, Apple should uh, hire this guy for the iPhone. In fact, they did test it with an iPhone. Yes, and they sprayed an RFID tag, and it went from something <laughs> like five inches to 700 feet or something. Yeah. I mean, it was – I mean, watch the video. It's – I know this seems wacky, but, you know, I, I – and I as I said to you in some email, I hope this isn't another cold fusion sort of, you know, thing, but – it it seems just barely tantalizing enough. <laughs> it really feels it, like a hoax. But so what it, we did is we passed this along to uh, George and Bob and Gordo at Ham Nation. Because if there are any antenna experts in the world, it's them. And we're going to find out what they say. Yeah. And they're going to try to get the guy on the show. Now, is he selling yeah. this stuff? Well, okay. There is a picture of a spray can, and that that was definitely that was definitely just meant to be sort of a joke, like what it what it could look yeah. like. I'm sure they're not at the spray can stage yet because <laughs> it looked sort of retail. Um, but you know, if you could spray on nanocapacitors, I mean, it's it is so convincing looking. If nothing else, enjoy it as a as a spoof. Because it's if so, it's beautifully done. If not, and if the claims are true, well, it's revolutionary. We we have a revolution in antenna technology. So I mean, you, his point in see, the speech, he says, "What if you know instead of cell towers being these ugly boxes on buildings, uh, you just sprayed the side of the building, and that's the cell tower, and it worked better." Well, and he even mentions that the efficiencies are so high that you can get power out of the air from just all the RF floating around. And so you might be able to create oh, self-powered <laughs> uh, towers. No, wait a hold on there. One cotton picking minute. <laughs> that sounds like the Robert Heinlein story where you had these antennas waving in the air, collecting energy from the uh, outside world. Uh, well, remember, I, remember that Tesla did transmit power right. across the globe. He created lightning on the other side of the earth from his big tower in Colorado um, by, by by resonating the earth's electromagnetic something or other. So, I mean, that was something Tesla was known to have done back then. So, who knows? I can't wait to find out more. I'm really, I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole thing. And we're going to try to uh, kind of narrow it down and track it down. The problem with military... You know, he has this good excuse for why he can't talk anymore about it, you know. And remember, supercapacitors, which are real, we talked about them a lot, but there was... Well, well but, nanocapacitors. No, but but yes, I know. But remember, we also talked about supercapacitors. Yes. And, and how, you know, they exist. They're not real. They're not a hoax. But there sometimes is a, a bit of a gulf between concept and implementation. Yes, there is a, there's a, super, there's a, super, a new supercapacitor-powered mouse also by the way, that is, you know, and, and we know that there's a super capacitor. I have a screwdriver. Powered, yep, screwdriver yep. and flashlight. And so we're beginning to see these things happen. Um, it does take materials breakthroughs typically in order to make this this go. This would be neat if this were if this were true. And Lord knows we could use a revolution in antennas. Because, I mean, so could Apple with the iPhone after that fiasco with the, you know, the, the antenna on the outer edge. 
that we that we talked about extensively back then. So, okay. And uh, last week follow up I had here. I said someone sent me a, a note that I ran across in the mailbag saying that was an awesome episode. What I what had mostly prevented me from switching permanently. Oh, I know why I wrote this or why, why I picked this up. What had mostly prevented me from switching permanently from the memory slash GDI object leaking Firefox to Chrome for a long time was the lack of a no script extension for Chrome. Now, if only there were a decent tree style tab like <laughs> extension for Chrome, I would be totally set. I have you for sure the most you didn't part, write this? <laughs> uh, I have for the most part now switched to Chrome. Wow. And so the reason I, if there's anybody listening, now the problem is I don't think that's possible. Um, I, I'm the same way. I'm, as we know, I'm a tabaholic. I mean, I'm a confessed tabaholic. I've got, it's like about 30 open right now because they're, they're over on the side and they're small. And they're nice. Now, you can, on Windows, move Chrome's tabs to the side, but they're still big. They take up much more space than they should, so you can't have as many of them. So, anyway, I'm hoping that Chrome will evolve over time. I know Google loves the way it looks, and, they, and they're and they very proud of the, how clean it is. But, you know, there are people who just live on tabs, and, you know, I'm one of them. So, you know, we need. I, I agree with this guy completely. Wait a minute. Do, Wait Small a minute. tabs on the side, that would be wonderful. Is this, okay, get ready for this one. This is, comes from the uh, chat room. The guy who was talking about spray-on antennas was from a company called Chamtech or Shamtech, right? Uh, They're selling this spray-on antenna kit. Call for pricing. This is, all right, somebody order that and tell us how, how it works. <laughs> That's got to be a joke. Sham tech, Caref- right? Careful where, careful where you spray it, though. <laughs> you know what? You this know. is a joke because I don't see a phone number oh. next to the call for pricing. Is this him? Is this the same guy? <sighs> yeah, they have sell spray-on kits. There is a phone number. Our con- I don't know. Somebody order I that. If, I, I wonder Sham if tech? I wonder if... Yeah, that does sound okay. But if you were going to be a be a spoof, why would you call yourself Sham Tech? Right. Well, you know, and, and Solve for X was fooled. If if I don't know, somebody order this. Or or maybe maybe the Solve for X video is a spoof. That no, this no, is no. not. No, I don't. Th- I don't think so. I wonder if it's actually on the Solve for X website. It is. Just it is. It's on okay, the Solve okay. for X. It is. I think. Well, yeah. I, I looked at Solve X and saw all, a lot of other cool things, and oh, it's under YouTube. Oh, maybe it's somebody else. Let's see. Let's see if we can find this guy. No, there he is. It is on the Solve X website. Oh. oh, it's just fascinating. I just, I, it doesn't feel right, and yet, uh, I get, I got to call him and order. You can order it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the spray can is real. It's real. Anyway, everybody, look at the video. Uh, is there an easy way to find it in Google, Leo? Can, like spray on antenna if you Google or if you go, go to, to YouTube, you can go to their website, ShamTechOps, C H A M T E C H O P S dot com, or SolveForX.com. Either way, you will be able to find this video of Anthony Sutera, who is uh, their CEO and an entrepreneur yep. in communications. 
Well, he sure is. <laughs> wow. He, he definitely, whether it's RF communications or spoofing <laughs> communications. I I don't know what to say. It looks, it's so tantalizing. I want to I wanna get it. Yeah. Uh, Omri, who is also a speaker at SolveRx, is going to come on on one of our shows. He uh, He's a fan and he's been to the studio. So it's real. It's it's a legitimate Google Solve event. SolveRx is real. Yeah. Yes, yes. So I don't know. Wow. wow. Anyway, we will... We'll we'll follow up and keep our listeners informed. We've got because... high high web in our chat room is ordering it right now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Let me know the price, high web, will you? <laughs> wow. All right, moving moving right along. So we're actually on a very related topic. Uh, I just wanted to give our listeners a, an update on the Light Squared uh, Global Positioning System uh, band spread collision. Uh, the fight continues. I will will remember that Light Squared, that's a commercial company wanting to build a next generation 4G wireless network in the so-called L-band spectrum, which unfortunately, inconveniently, lies adjacent to the frequencies used by the global positioning system. Due to L-band's close proximity to the frequencies used by GPS, about half of the frequencies that they plan to use in their, that Light, Light Squared plan to use in their network have been shown to cause interference on some GPS receivers. Now, as we mentioned last time, this is partly the fact that the Jeep of, of the, or partly the fault of the fact that the GPS receivers aren't very narrowly tuned. That is, their own reception isn't isn't tightly tuned and constrained to the GPS frequencies because there wasn't anybody nearby and so in terms of the frequency response they were able to use less expensive less narrowly tuned receivers to save money and that what's called the skirts of of their response curve falls out into this l band which had previously been unallocated and unused anyway today which may have been yesterday, the NTIA, the National Telecommunications Information Administration, sent a letter to the FCC, which declared the interference to be unavoidable, quote, based on NTIA's independent evaluation of the testing and analysis performed over the last several months, we conclude that Light Squared's proposed mobile broadband network will impact GPS services and that there is no practical way to mitigate the potential interference at this time. <clears throat> well, you can imagine that Light Squared Corporation promptly replied. They said, quote, Light Squared profoundly disagrees. This is sort of how this is, this is like how this is like uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Mitt Romney is a severe conservative. <laughs> um, Light squared profoundly disagrees with both the NTIAs and the PNTs. I don't know what the PNT is. Uh, anyway, somebody else. The PNTs recommendations, which disregard more than a decade of regulatory orders and in doing so jeopardize private enterprise, jobs, and investment in America's future. 
Do we have any music you can play in the background, Leo? <laughs> NTIA relies on interference <laughs> standards that have never been used in this context mm. and were forced by the GPS community in order to reach the conclusions presented today. This, together with a severely flawed testing process that relied on obsolete and niche devices, shows that the FCC should take the NTIA's recommendation with a generous helping of salt. Actually, I don't think you know them using this kind of humor in their communication is useful to them. But you know, uh, despite Light Squared's success in finding technical solutions and the acknowledgement by a senior government official that GPS receivers are specifically designed to rely on spectrum licensed to light squared, which that refers to the you know sloppiness of the GPS receiver design. It is extremely disappointing that this recommendation was made today. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, the I mean, we, we have a situation where band that uh, should be usable can't be due to the fact that an existing install base of GPS receivers are are caused pain when this band is used. So um, there you go. I think LightSquared is going to end up having a problem. Too bad because, of course, the idea of ubiquitous wireless Internet is fantastic. It is. And we are all, we're all for that. And I, uh, I had hoped they had to come up with a good solution. Yeah. Um, I did. Speaking of a good solution, Nick Bowen dropped me a note, which I saw. He wrote it on Sunday, February 5th, so just a couple days ago, from Walnut Creek, California. He said, a short time ago, a friend brought me his computer for me to run DBAN, which we've spoken of, Derek's boot and nuke, on prior to him getting rid of it. It was an old Win 98 machine, and DBAN would not run because the hard drive would just grind. He had purchased Spinrite. Oh, I, says Nick, I had purchased Spinrite a couple of years ago and had not used it yet. But I thought this would be a great opportunity. I ran it on level two and it fixed the drive. This then allowed me to securely wipe the data before it was given away. Thanks for the podcast and great product, Nick. So yet another use for Spinrite. You run it before you wipe your drive. And in fact... At some point, Spinrite will do that for you, but not quite yet. Oh, yep. We're looking for Spinrite 7? Uh, I think it's going to be 7, maybe 6.1, but uh, but 7 for sure. Um, I, got, I did trademark uh, Beyond Recall, which I just love. <laughs> uh, and for a while, I was going to um, do a separate thing, but I ah. thought, ah, that's dumb. It's just so, I mean, it's everything Spinrite's doing except just use good source of pseudo-random data uh, to wipe the drive and, in the process, fix any other problems. And there are actually some tricky things that Spinrite can do also. Do so, it at the same time, kind of. To do it at the same time. Yeah. So to do a better job than, than boot and nuke, do a much faster job, leverage all the same technology, uh, but and make it very clear to people that if they proceed, their data will not be there. It's gone. It's beyond gone. recall. Gone for sure. Beyond recall. Exactly. We have uh, 10 questions plus, as you say, the bonus unintended consequence of the day. <laughs> Let's start with Gareth in Germany. He actually asked this on Twitter, hence its brevity. Gaz2010 says, 
uh, at SGGRC. Steve Love SN wondering if a NAT router without SPI is any less secure, would you say, many thanks. What is it? I don't know what SPI is. Uh, stateful packet oh, inspection, of course. And, you know, you know, my sense is, Gareth, no. Now, I ought to mention that I wanted to respond to Gareth, and I tried to, but he's not following me on Twitter. So he got the message to me by mentioning right. SGGRC, so I, and I, that I saw. But I, the only way for me to respond to him would be if I mentioned him. And the problem is with 20, I don't remember now how many, 27,000 or something followers, I would be cluttering up my stream. Ah, I can give you a solution I, on that. Oh, really? Yeah, and this is, you know complicated but uh twitter if you just reply to a uh an app uh reply to a single posting huh yeah if you if the very first thing in your reply is at his name it yeah. will only be seen by him and those who follow you both the intersection of your followers and his followers which oh. yeah, which presumes that those, and I think it makes sense if you think about it, because those people saw his question to you because they're his followers. So in effect, you're having a conversation with people who are already in on the conversation. It and does make sense, and in fact, I have wondered. I've seen dialogues occurring in my Twitter stream right. through through at mentions, and I've thought. How are these people all seeing each other? Right. I figured they must be looking at my stream, but in fact, they're just following the people who it's are the intersection. sending. Right. Ah, uh, nice. Now, to get around that, people sometimes will put dot at, and then... Or, and I've seen that, too. Yeah, yep. and the reason they do ah. that is now this is visible to everybody in your stream, whether they follow nice. the original poster or not. Or, and sometimes I'll do that, too. I'll put a sentence fragment ahead of the at... I'll say, good question, at. The answer is, if I want everybody to see it, and it, and usually I do that because most of the time what I'm talking about is of general interest, but if you were just having a conversation, just begin it with the at and that person's name, and it will only be visible to the intersection of your followers and his or hers. Oh, perfect. I love yeah. that. It was a clever thing, Twitter uh, figured that out, and it, it, it's not well documented, and not, I, th I think you just have to learn it. It's brilliant. Yeah. And you're right. You can't DM somebody unless they are already following you. Another way that they protect you a little bit from uh, spam from, from DMs. Spam. Right. Absolutely. So to answer Gareth's question, now that we've all learned something new about Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. Thank you, Leo. Um, uh, you know, my sense is paying for SPI buys you nothing worth the money. Um, a NAT router is stateful packet inspection. I mean, that's what it does. The reason you don't get Internet background radiation flooding into your network is that only packets that are that are expected are allowed back in. So and that is state. That is the router holding state. So if you if you send a SYN packet out to a remote server to open a TCP connection, the SYN ACK packet responding to that is allowed in because your router remembers that pending outgoing SYN. It, it, interp it interprets the packet and, you know, statefully remembers what's coming back. Now, it's true that there are abuses of protocols which, which additional stateful packet inspection could theoretically help 
prevent. But we've all now also got firewalls on our personal computers. Not only are we protected out at our at the boundary of the internet and our network, but you know every individual computer within our network has protection. So yeah, my sense is you know if if it's there and and they they use it as a marketing term mostly, then it doesn't hurt you. My sense is though it's you know if you you know. Any NAT router is providing you with stateful packet inspection effectively, and it's never been clear to me what more you actually get. Well, doesn't SPI look into the content of the packet? So yeah, give you so so, give so you, does NAT. NAT actually, yeah, it's got, it looks at more than just the 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 port and the routing. Well, um, it can, for example, in order to NAT um, FTP FTP protocol requires that the that your server respond uh, that 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 um, you understand that it's an FTP uh, connection being established because FTP uses two ports and the server will be coming in over a different port for your data than over your control channel your your command channel so so there is more more going on for you know than just IP and and port number. All right. And, and anyway, I mean, if they you if know, they would ever say what it is they do, they then it's like okay, course. I would believe them. But all they do is say SPI, and, right. you know, expect you to pay more for it. It's like, well, <laughs> right. unless you tell me what it is, I'm not buying it. Right, literally. Right. Question two: A deliberately anonymous user somewhere near Yakima, Washington, says. A few years ago, I was a treasurer for a martial arts club. All treasurers were given a website login that changed every year. However, I noticed if I memorize the URL path after logging in, something like martialartswebsitename.com slash treasurer admin, I can simply bookmark that and always access the administrative materials without having to first use a username and password. This is somewhat akin to the problem you described with the TrendNet cameras and the CGI you know, script. My question is, how do websites protect against people bypassing login pages in this fashion? Could attackers simply bypass the whole username and password attempt by simply brute force guessing the URL post-logging? Thank you. Well, in theory, um, it worked for the TrendNet cameras. It clearly worked for this no. martial arts website. No, but, that, but that's because um, it was poorly implemented. If you use yes. .htaccess, your web server protects you against that kind of stuff. Well, though, and the way that is done is... Um, I mean, the right way to do it, we've talked about often, and that is with session cookies. The idea being that if you ever tried, every query from the browser is accompanied by whatever cookies the, your browser has for that site. And the site should, if it's a protected area, verify that you have an unexpired valid cookie, which is essentially what gives you roaming permissions within that protected area. So that's the way logins expire. That's the way when you log out, that cookie is deleted or it's disavowed by this at, at the server. So the server will no longer accept that, you know, that cookie from you. You need to log in again in order for it to give you a essentially a permission cookie and then all subsequent queries from the browser carry that and and permit you to go on. It's certainly possible, as you said, Leo, that really cheesy websites would 
would do nothing but present you with, you know, a login request on the front page and then just send you to a, a, a permission page. But it's horribly insecure for exactly this reason. Just poorly implemented. Yeah. So, the, yeah, I mean, so you, I mean, I always used HT access, which is a web server control file on the server side that says uh, this particular page is not accessible uh, unless a person provides. So the server is doing it server side. But, of course, the transaction, once opened, has to be continue without continuously asking for a password. So that's when it's going to start using cookies at that point. Exactly. You, you, you give it a valid username and password in response to that the the challenge right. of if you know this area is protected by a password please provide username and password to log on when you do so and hit send the that query goes back to the server it looks up your credentials verifies they're correct and in its response to you where it says thank you for logging on joe um, or I guess we did have his name. Oh, no, he was anonymous. Thank you for logging on, unknown martial arts John administrator. <laughs> um, you know, you you now have permission on the site. With that response is a set cookie header in the response, which then, which could have an expiration. It could be a session cookie where it will automatically, it will never be stored on disk and it will just disappear when you close your browser session or it could be valid, you know, we, we, we've seen checkboxes like, you know, keep me logged in for 24 hours. And so it could have a 24-hour expiration where it will self-expire. Or even to make sure that's honored, the server could keep its matching credential for that cookie and make sure that it's not honored after 24 hours. So, you know, there are, there are good, so solid ways to do this. And, of course, without saying, all this is over SSL because... The problem with not doing it over SSL is exactly what um, uh, uh, Firesheep was finding. It was catching those cookies over non-SSL, mm. and that was the credential that then allowed people to impersonate others. They were then able to just go to them, go, you know, open their Facebook page as them, impersonating them using that cookie as their credential. All right, just neat, neat stuff. Yeah, and uh, that's htaccess.htaccess, which is a server-side file, is uh, supported by Apache. But I, met, I bet other servers like IIS or Nginx have similar uh, server-side well, I mean, techniques. Actually, there's just a billion ways to do that. Right. If you – anytime you went to a page that that was protected, you could have the server using server-side stuff – See if there if if the if the query for that page is carrying a valid cookie. If not, rather than delivering that page, you deliver the password challenge, and make them authenticate themselves. Then you give them the cookie. Then they're good to go. Question three: Craig in Nashville, Tennessee. He wonders about the need for 2048-bit certificates. Recently, went to renew a website cert for my company through Thought. T-H-A-W-T-E, I noticed, which is owned by VeriSign now, I think. Yep. I noticed they're going to start requiring 2048-bit certs in about a year. Soon, you won't even be able to get a 1024-bit cert from them. I would think 1024 bits is more than enough. Are they being overly paranoid? Or is there some legitimate reason behind changing 
from 1024 to 2048. Thanks for a great podcast. Keep up the good work. I drive three hours each week to work. Holy cow. Ooh. It gives me something to look forward to while I'm sitting in the car. Well, so this I referred to this question at the top of the show, and I was glad to see that there is this kind of planning happening because as was mentioned in that paper about the the collisions of of SSL certificates, it is the case that academicians have factored 512-bit um, composites of primes. They have also factored um, 768, which is that next step. That's 512 plus 256. They factored that size key. And we can assume that at some point in the future, they're going to go to the next step at 1024. Um, This problem gets exponentially harder. That is, it's just even though 1024 is only another equal size step from 768 as 512 was from 768, it's still way harder. So there is no expectation that this is going to be happening soon, but we want to always keep our security, you know, several steps ahead of of where the technology is for cracking that security. And so going to 2048-bit certs really makes sense. Right now, if you're using a, if you have an extended validation cert, you have no choice. EV certs must be 2048. That's just part of the package. So so, you know, that's where I went uh, with mine. And I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing 4096 before long. They, I mean, it takes them longer to generate and longer to handle, but machines are getting faster too. So, yeah. and boy, at that point, <laughs> we're talking serious security. Yeah, we kind of keep parity because even though it takes more to generate these, the reason we want longer ones is because computers are getting faster. So there's kind of this kind of parity there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the good news is it, 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 it's... It, the desktop generation of bits of uh, of uh, uh, keys is faster, much faster, and growing at a much faster rate than it is the decompobulation, the factoring. Yeah, and although remember that it is desktop generation of keys where we're depending upon the random number generators, uh, the pseudo random number generators in the desktop. We got to so improve it's, that. It's, we really do. Yes, it really is a reason why it's much better to get your keys. From somebody with a huge obligation and commitment right. to entropy, like you know, somebody who's issuing public keys uh, for their their livelihood. When I created my uh, key for my new PGP key, because mine had expired, so it was time. I made a twenty forty eight bit, and it generates it on the desktop, but it asks you to uh-huh. mouse around, open windows, do a lot of stuff. So it collects entropy. I'm gathering from the activity going on on the computer, which is somewhat pseudo. It's pseudo random, but somewhat randomized. Yes, although there, I did see in the mailbag actually just this morning somebody complaining that whatever they were they were trying to generate a certificate and they kept getting the message that the system had insufficient entropy because apparently some other processes that were also running in the same system were draining the entropy more quickly than the system was able to generate it. And so that's the other thing that happens is that there's a, there's this notion of an entropy pool and the system is from whatever sources it can, from the timing of arriving packets, from, from keystrokes, from mouse movements, you know, from, from any 
sources of true randomness. It's trying to collect this, but then there are things um, that you know, like like setting up uh, every time you initiate an SSL connection. You don't need. You're not generating a public key, but you are using up entropy to to uh, choose a private key, which is the session key under SSL. So systems which are negotiating SSL connections at a high rate have a dem- a constant demand for entropy, and that can't. And, and the idea is that the pseudo random number generators should only run for so long before they're reseeded with fresh entropy and that needs to come from somewhere so there is a lot more going on behind the scenes than a lot of us realize it's fascinating jim dwyer tipperary ireland is seeing ssl certificate areas errors at work but not uh, due to the usual causes at least so he thinks Great show with Leo. Listen every week here in damp old Ireland and envy the Southern California weather you two guys occasionally mention. My question is, how does one exactly track down the cause of a certificate error? I ask because lately my employers, which is a bank with very strong security policies and practices, Internet browser IE8 has been throwing up warnings about certificate errors to sites that I know have good certs. I don't get this warning when I access these sites on my home laptop or computer. I use Firefox at home, while IE8 is the bank's browser of choice, unfortunately. For example, he gives a TD Ameritrade uh, address. He says it generates a certificate error on IE8 at work with the warning the security cert presented was not issued by a trusted certificate authority. IE8 says, close this page down, but when I check the certificate, it all seems normal. I don't see my employer as a... Certificate Authority. He thought that they were doing a man in the middle, I guess, as we talked about before. Yep. Uh, it shows, you know, star.tdameritrade.com issued by Verisign. Valid from 9-9-2011 to 8-9-2012. So that, that all looks good, right? So what the heck's going on? Do you think my uh, employer is in intercepting SSL websites or is there another factor at play here? There are two tabs about the certificate details. And a certification path that's too long to write about here. Thanks for the great shows. I recently got an Apple TV, which is very handy for watching the show and other Twitch shows, too, on our 46-inch screen. Although my kids get annoyed when Daddy watches TV for an hour or more after school and they can't watch Garfield. So I think you're helping me be a better parent, too. Kind regards from Ireland, Jim. P.S. I bought Spin right years ago when the show came out just as a means of payment. And thank you for the great show. And I'm sure one day soon it will save my bacon. It's ready and waiting just in case. Thank you, Jim. What a nice email. Well, a great email and a really interesting question. Yeah. So so he's got IE8 complaining, saying the cert presented was not issued by a trusted certificate authority. We've never talked about this before, but my hunch from everything he said is that he has on that particular system a corrupted certificate authority store and s-t-o-r-e as in storage and that can happen so for example i would go to any other machine and see if it can open a link that his machine can't that is within the corporate facility in his bank my guess is that nobody else is having this trouble just him on this one machine and that some corruption did occur on this specifically 
in this case, on VeriSign's Class 3 Secure Server CA cert. And so, in fact, there isn't a valid certificate even though it's it wants to be valid, it should, there there's something wrong with, with with his store, and I I have seen this kind of thing happen before. So uh, my guess is it just localized corruption, and it he, that it's probably possible to fix that. that yeah, that Verisign should certainly be recognized as a certificate authority. They're probably the number one certificate authority in the world, I would guess. Yeah, yeah. And, exactly. Of course, I went to the same site uh, on uh, my browser on my computer in front of me and it's it's it says the certificate's valid and i get all the extra little doohickeys and doodahs and uh so it, i yeah it sounds like it's something wrong with his particular system i think just one machine is, is having a problem there wouldn't exactly. be a way for his company to be causing this problem and the certificate still to look good would there um no and that's the problem if his company were doing a man in the middle then it would be impersonating TD Ameritrade in his example, right. and the and the certificate would show as being something other than Verisign, and then the then then he he would be getting exactly the same error that it's signed by somebody non trusted. Right. If his computer also did not have his bank's own um, public certificate that was used to sign the man on the middle certificate, so. You could get that error, but then you would see that it was not signed by VeriSign. The fact that it was signed by a valid CA says that your computer is not recognizing the validity of VeriSign, and there's no reason for it not to except corruption in the certificate authority database. Right. That would that that, that explains it. Question five: Kevin Gunn in uh, Denver, Colorado, wonders about. Perfect posthumous posthumous passwords. Steve, how do you handle or suggest handling giving passwords to loved ones after you die? Sorry for the direct morbid question, but this is one I've been wrestling with lately. Uh, I think we all are, Kevin. I think we've talked about this before. It's a great question. I'm a last pass it's user. My password question. is a complex 10-plus character password, numbers, letters, lower and upper, as well as special characters. All of my accounts have complex passwords I've created using LastPass or some other complex password generation tool. Occasionally, those passwords change, including my LastPass. The issue then is when I do, I realize my wife won't be able to log into any of my accounts. Not even I know my own passwords. I just know the LastPass one. That's how many of us do it. Uh, you trust LastPass, but uh, you don't have to remember all those complex passwords. I've heard about some sites that require you to check in periodically, and, and if not, they presume you're dead and send out a message <laughs> to whomever you define. But I'm concerned about security. I obviously don't want to hand out my LastPass password to some site that would give unwarranted access to all of my accounts. Others have suggested writing passwords on paper, storing it in a safe deposit box at the bank or something, but that last one would have to remember to update the list. Or at least the password uh, on password changes. I was just curious. As I begin a quest for a solution, if you have any suggestions, what do you do yourself? Thanks for your work. I, so I have. A, I think it's a great question. One of the one of the things that any of us who are being responsible need to think about uh, is you know, right? What happens if if, uh, if the worst happens, happens. To us? Yeah. yeah, if the worst happens and. Uh, so, and people we would wish could get access to our accounts 
um, of all kinds are unable to. The beauty of LastPass is that it aggregates, or or any similar password manager, it aggregates this mass of disparate logon credentials under a single um, authority. So there's one point of of permission, of, of authentication that then expands to all. So that's really good from that standpoint because one could imagine the listeners to this podcast are, have, may have gone to extremes for security that would be hard, you know, to, you'd be hard-pressed to expect, uh, you know, wives, siblings, you know, whomever to deal with. Okay, so I had a couple thoughts. Um, one would be... Uh, you could generate a list of passwords. For example, say that you decided every six months you wanted to change your last pass password. You generate, you pre-generate a list, you know, and say that you've got, you imagine 50 years left of your life. So every six months, that means you need 100 of them. You, you could go to somewhere like GRC's Perfect Passwords, which will give you gibberish, to your heart's content and just copy them down, you know, make them whatever length you want and create a little spreadsheet of, of, you know, January, 2012, um, July, 2012, January, 2013, July, 2013, and so forth. Um, and show the matching password. It's then up to you to, to keep your own list private yourself and to follow that to change your master last pass password every six months on that schedule knowing that locked up safely maybe it's in a in your attorney's file for you um, or in a safety deposit box which will be unlocked upon your demise um, or whatever so that would be one way another way that doesn't require any kind of of like list uh, pre-generation, I had the thought of, well, there are websites that offer web-based hashing like MD5 or SHA1. I just put in to Google when I was uh, posting this question, you know, uh, web-based SHA1, and I and up came some. And so what you could do there is there would be instructions which you leave which say, you know, if anything happens to me, put in this phrase, dash, and the year, and into this site. You hash that into, through an SHA1 hash, and that's your key. So, so that, all so, you'd have to put in the safe deposit box was this one piece of paper with a date next to each one. Saying this is in this time range, this is the password. This time range, this is the password. This time, or you could do that. You could do right. that, or do what I like is is use this this I use Super Gen Pass, which does this. Your master password would be the year and day, and it would change according to those uh, days. I think that's a good idea, very yeah. clever. Or, and then you wouldn't have to worry about it. You just have to remember to change your master password on a regular basis. And or one final solution is it's it's a this is a, a nice reason. So so. Using all of that requires technology. Right. We have an off. We have a non-technology solution called off the grid. Yes, and that's exactly what this is for. So you could leave instructions to use an an off the grid grid, where you simply 
put in the year, you know, 2013, you, 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 you do the off-the-grid approach using the Latin square, and then from wherever you land, you just, for example, do 12 characters to the left, for example, or whatever uh, your instructions yes. are. And that way you have a, a changing password, no technology, it goes forever, you don't have to do it in advance any number of, of years or months or whatever. And you can make it as complex or simple as you choose. And as you say, Leo, then you, your obligation is to make sure yours, you stay current with the, right. with the instructions you left behind. And on, by the way, if you didn't, that's not a problem either. Because the pe- you could say, and if it doesn't work, go try back. the <laughs> exactly. Then I, I may forgot. have forgotten. I've forgotten. <laughs> right. So go back to time until it does, right. and you'll you'll find the master one that works. That's clever. Now, yeah. somebody in the chat room does point out that there is a a LastPass sharing feature. You can share your LastPass with somebody else. Um, of course, the reason that he doesn't want to do that ahead of time is he doesn't want to hasten his demise by <laughs> inadvertently giving his passwords to his wife before he's passed on right right uh just a little joke there very little sammy pasadena california wonders how secure are anonymizers anonymizers Stephen leo i'm fairly new to security now but you've got me hooked your explanation of the wps protocol was amazing thank you for all the work you do i'm curious what your thoughts are on anonymizers like tor or iPredator, are they truly anonymous, or is it possible to decrypt and trace the hops back to the true source? Secondly, in the case of Tor, do you think the risk of a peer node injecting malicious code into returned results makes Tor too dangerous for use? Thanks again. We have covered this, but I, I agree it's probably worth Well, yeah, again. I thought quickly, just saying that I guess my take is that you're trading off one thing for another. So if you... If you don't use a system like that, then your traffic sprays out from you all over the internet, point to point. Right. If you run through a VPN or Tor, and iPredator is just a VPN offered by the Pirate Bay people, then your, your traffic is going through that system, and at some known point... It is then emerging unprotected and unencrypted unless you've got other encryption in in the connection, but not encryption provided by, by this service onto the Internet. Because those are high-value emission points, mm. that is, you know, the the powers that be with initials in their names could figure, well, you know, that these Tor endpoints are worth watching or the Pirate Bay's VPN server is worth keeping an eye on. So now your traffic is coming, is being, is emitted from the internet at a high value location, much easier for, for organizations to watch if they wanted to than if it was just you at home, you and, you know, you and, you know, sort of lost among the millions. Um, so there's a trade-off, I think. Yeah. Um, I, it does provide you with anonymity, but it also um, brings your traffic, I think, more to the notice, potentially, of organizations that would care. Uh, furthermore, uh, 
you can't count on uh, Pirate Bay or other organizations to not respond to government subpoenas. Yes. Uh, we've learned that with uh, Hushmail, for instance, which is an email encryption service that uh, just handed over keys uh, when, yes. when asked. And that's, in most cases, what any of these services are going to do unless they want to be, you know, uh, outside the law. Keenan Moses Lake, wherever that is, <laughs> offers some fun math. I had a discussion with a classmate about encryption and how he thought the, the government could break anything. I knew better than to argue with him, so instead I did some math for the fun of it. I know you already know this, but I had to vent. I took 256-bit encryption and assumed that the only way to crack it was, as we currently believe, a brute force attack against the 256-bit key. After all, we're talking 128-bit this and 256-bit that. It's the bit length we're focusing on. So let's say the Trixie government has a secret algorithm that somehow allows them to weaken the strength to one trillionth of the original. That's good a number. One trillionth. And let's say they had a computer that can try 100 trillion guesses per second. And let's say this computer was one cubic millimeter in size. And let's say they built a cracking complex the size of the entire Earth made out of these one cubic millimeter crypto cracking computers. If I did my math right, it would still take 34 trillion years to crack. I like that. I like that too. Did you, that, did you check his math? I did not. I'm, but it sounds right. And I, I, I liked, I wanted to include this just because we're so glib about right. saying, oh, we went from 128 bit key to 256 bit. It is so easy to sort of get this sense of, well, that's twice as strong. Oh, honey. <laughs> no, 129 bits is twice as strong. Right. Right. 130 bits is twice as strong as that, and so on for another 126 times. So, I mean, it is it is so ridiculously stronger. So, anyway, I loved Keenan's uh, math. It's, you know, people don't have trouble with orders of magnitude, exponential, yep. things like that. And so yep. uh, that just brings it home. It's, that's not intuitive, exactly. Niall Davis in Mesa, Arizona has uh, some questions about... And some thoughts about assembly language spinwright and the Navy SEALs. I've been, an, <laughs> I've been an avid listener of security now since the beginning, listening on the ski slopes, the airplane, road trips, while mowing my lawn and so on. I can't get enough, although I've been intending to reply for a while now. After listening to episode 332, I wanted to ask you a favor. I have dabbled with assembly language programming since I taught myself how to use the 6502 chip in an Apple II a long time ago. You mentioned you're writing assembly language. But it's really pretty. <laughs> Could you? Pretty is in the eye of the beholder. I just want to point that out. Could you write a simple hello world type program in assembler and let us see what's, what it looks like? I'm sure it would help those of us who would like to program an assembly but would like to see how pretty yours is. I've been a user of SpinWrite since version 3.1. I don't remember the exact num version number. And, it, and it's helped me with multiple hard drives, floppy disks, iPods, TiVos, even an old Xbox I'm looking forward to version 6.1 since I have a couple of motherboards with BIOS issues. Got any idea on its release date? And finally, my wife's first cousin is a Navy SEAL, and after sharing with him the story about Spinrite saving the SEALs, he said, yeah, that could have happened. So, well, I believe the story. Thanks and keep up the great work. Niall Davis, Mesa, Arizona, an orthodontist who's crazy about technology, but I usually work with bites of a different order. <laughs> okay, so... 
it has come up from time to time that people wonder what my assembly code looks like because I talk about how it's possible to write Pretty high nice. visibility assembly language, yeah. assembly code, which is ultra efficient in executing individual instructions of the raw chip, insanely fast, incredibly small, yet doesn't just look like gobbledygook. So I just posted in my Twitter feed links to two GIF images of my editor. This is what I see when I look at my assembly code. I did it as a GIF image because I use a colorizing system and and a text box. So just giving you a text file, you'd lose the line drawing characters and, and a, a sense for what I actually see, which is what makes it pretty. So Leo, if you go to uh, twitter.com slash sggrc you'll see right there at the top of the of the feed a couple links I, I did little bitly shortcuts of sg assembly and sg assembly 2 or you could just put those into bitly bit.ly slash sg assembly or sg assembly 2 and you'll look at, see look at how nice the the comments are with boxes and everything. Do you have a macro that does those boxes or do you don't I type do. those? Yeah. I do. No, yeah. I've got I just press one button and yeah. it creates the whole framework for me. Yeah. That's but that's, nice. you know, and that's what it looks like. Even though it's structured, you've got if then else constructs, you've got looping constructs. Those there's those all are before I even considered using them. I looked at what the what Ma- what Ma- what Microsoft's macro assembler did with those, and they all resolve to a single instruction. So there's so zero overhead. When I see, so I'm looking at a repeat until loop that has an if, else if, end if inside it. Yep. That those commands begin with a dot. They're not actually assembler commands. They're macro commands. Correct. So they expand out uh, as predefined by Micro's MSM. Yeah, uh, and, and into assembler. But invoke, yeah, and I can't just they invoke one instruction. So for right. example, I'm not able to just put any random phrases in there in you know in the if right. statement. Right. I'm like putting, you know, register descriptions or variable names. I mean, it's exactly I know exactly what code is being created and I and so I use that because it's so much easier to read. I mean, it's it doesn't look like I see, you know, weenies who write assembler and it's just like a bite of opcodes down the left hand margin of the page and i think well good luck with that so this whole this whole block that we're looking at has as far as i can tell no actual assembler in it if we go to the next block you'll see some move commands which is assembly language but invoke invoke is not is that a a assembler command or is that a macro uh, it's a macro uh, which is used to invoke uh, Win32, the API. I so see. those are I API see. calls. So these are API calls. Read, application, D word is an oh, API. A- actually, that that's my own. So I oh, okay. def- I'm also able to define. So those are actually subroutine calls or uh, or API calls. So so I have subroutines that I've defined that look just like that, that you give parameters to. You'll notice it's all spelled out. I'm not, you know, using cryptic language right. for anything. And the reason is when I come back to it a couple of years later, yeah. I can read it. Well, and, and so if anybody's programmed in a high-level code, this really looks somewhat similar to high-level code. There's a few things. There's things like check EAX. You have to know that that's a register and, and things like that. But uh, but it does look like high-level code for the most part. It does not look like uh, gobbledygook. Um, yeah. 
you know, you can you can kind of, but you still, you know, you're still working in assembler. You're still doing a move EAX comma reply length, which is moving a value into a register. That's yep. pretty low level. <laughs> oh, it is. Let's low level. That's down there. The other thing is that the subroutine names, the variable names are long and meaningful. Yeah. So, you know, they're not it's not XR2Z or something, which has no meaning at all. It's, you know, much more useful variable names. This, this is this really is beautiful uh, code. Actually, I've never seen your code before, so it is kind of fun for for we. That's what it all looks like we who are yeah. we who ge- we who are geeks to uh, to take and, a look. And uh, uh, Spinrite six point one timing. I have no idea. It is, however, the next major thing I'm going to do. It will be a free upgrade for everyone who has six o o these many years. Uh, and the target is to catch it up with things that have happened since, like the big 4K sectors that WD drives have. Even though Spinrite works on them now, there are there are things I can do to make it better. Uh, deeper awareness of SATA drives. Um, uh, better awareness of hybrid drives that use both e, you know, uh, flash and magnetic storage and other stuff. So it's going to be, a, you know, not tons of new features, but... Uh, performance improvements and a sort of a catch up, uh, and then we'll see where we are. Uh, I'm I would love to do move on to seven zero and add a bunch of new features as well. And I'm glad to know that the Navy SEAL adventure could have happened. We haven't ever repeated that, Leo. We're going to have great to repeat story. That yeah, it's a really great story. Question nine from uh, Doug in Illinois, having trouble staying ahead of his family and friends' PC infections. Oh, Doug, you have my. Both sympathy and understanding. I do more than what I would like at times in cleaning family and friends' PCs or at least hearing about them. I've noticed what seems to be a rash of infections from fake antiviruses. My parents' PC just became the latest casualty. I've done what I can to educate my family on protecting their PC. I've made sure their real antivirus and Windows are both kept up to date. My mom uses Firefox, I don't know what version, most of the time, and jumps to Chrome and IE when all else fails. I have a feeling the source of infection on my mom's PC, believe it or not, are Christian websites whose administrators don't know what they're doing or haven't updated the site or server in years. The gist of my question is, is there any way a user can know if a site is trying to install software on the PC? You know, it, I just wanted to say if there were a solution to it, we'd all be using it. I, I love um, the fact that, and we've been bitten by this, but the Google now will give you an alert if it sees, um, if, and that's why I use, one of the reasons I like Chrome, if it sees that they're, because it's as it's, see, Google has an advantage. They're spidering these sites all the time. So if they see known code on there, known bad code, yes. malicious code, they'll add you to a database. And when you go there on Chrome, it'll say, <laughs> and for the most part, that's very accurate. Uh, Internet yep. Explorer does that now too. Of course, the, the the problem is that if it's something that where you do something that is its user action, user permission, that's still the way this stuff gets in, and and so we're back to training yeah. users. They're just, True. you know. And the other thing I would say is this is a case where you really want to run as a limited user. If you can if you can lock down the system like like her mom, like mom's PC, she really doesn't probably need to be installing anything right. ever. And so this is a place where you definitely do not want to run as an admin. Um and maybe you even want to go further and do something like prevent mom from even being able to give UAC permission. You know, I mean, really lock the system down tighter so she just can't go clicking away at things thinking that she's doing something. Because if 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 it's things like fake AV, 
remember that one of my favorite things of all, I think it was, it was um, our, our friend Brian Krebs, who I quoted, he said, you know, never install anything you didn't go looking for. Right. I love that advice. Right. If something offers you software, just say no. Yep. Unless you initiated the search, don't install it, right. period. I, for a long time, when my mom was still using Windows, she uses a Mac now, but when she was using Windows, I put her on Windows 2000, limited a limited uh, account, and I never had a problem for years. She could yep. do anything she wanted. Um, she had a log, you know, I, I explained to her how to do uh, antivirus updates, how she had to log in as administrator. I gave her that, uh, the tool to do that, but she was smart. She only did that when she wanted to update her antivirus. And after, and any other time she was running as a limited user and she was, and it was absolutely secure. She never had a problem. Yeah. Uh, question 10 from Mike Norin in North Bend, Washington. He says, Scripno, is it needed? This is that Chrome extension that we talked about last week. But he says, given Chrome's built-in sandboxing capability, do you really need protection from malware on Chrome? And given Chrome's performance at Pwn to Own, and with its regular automatic updates from Google, it seems Chrome is pretty well locked down out of the box. Do I have a false sense of security? Thanks. The only thing I would note, first of all, I agree with all that. I hope that Chrome's sandboxing is good and getting better. But it will also notice... Chrome is being updated all the time. Yeah, there's always and it's something. Not on, it's not only to increment their version number faster than Mozilla. Um, I found is, no, no, I found Scripno such a pain in the butt. Yeah, because <laughs> I kept going to sites and it wouldn't work, and I think it was me. And then I remember, I oh, I have Scripno installed, and I would have to yep. get permissions. I just gave up. I know it is. It is a different mode of operating. One I'm one I'm willing to do. You're used to it. Yeah, I'm I, I'm used to it, and and again, Chrome is being updated, but they're being updated because of problems being right. found. Right. So I love that it's secure by design rather than by hope, but they're <laughs> still only human. And finally, our unintended consequence of the week report from Bob in Littleton, Colorado. Stephen Leo, I found that the web and PDF transcripts of three three nine were cut short at the point after, right after Steve says, by default, he blocks the <clears throat> blank. I brought up the simple text transcript for 339. It appears to be complete. By this time, you've probably been notified of this. I enjoy every podcast every week. Thanks, Bob. W what happened, Steve? Oh, this is where Elaine is so fantastic. She wasn't I fooled. Sa I said, <laughs> and no other transcriber on the planet would have done this correctly. I said, by default, we're talking about the script no um, add-on. Yeah. I said, by default, he blocks the no script tag. Elaine knows that HTML tags are in angle brackets. Oh. Less than, no script, greater than. Right. So in her transcript, she has it correct. And when that loads into the browser... <laughs> It stops. It stops. <laughs> because it says no script. <laughs> you have to tell her about HTML entity encoding from now on. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> that is pretty funny. I got a I got a report quickly after the transcripts went up and I thought, what the heck? What could have possibly I mean, I happened? Had no trouble at all in all these years. Yeah. And I and and sure enough. 
I looked at it and I just thought, oh my goodness, you know, the the scripting was enabled for my local site because sure. I am I'm using it on my own browser. Sure. So as soon as the HTML hit the no script tag, it dropped everything from there on. And this transcript just stopped. We got it. And so all I had to do was, was you know, uh, I just turned those into uh, Amper GT semi right. and Amper LT semi. Um, and it was just fine then. And so it showed them to her. It showed them in the transcript without it chopping it off. So, oh, I just loved that. <laughs> what really a wonderful funny. little bug. And if, if Steve ever says drop table in a uh, podcast, please. <laughs> Do not execute. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That is really funny. Yeah, so you use HTML entity encoding by doing ampersand LT for less than semicolon and ampersand GT for greater than semicolon, and then you'll, you'll yep. be okay. And Elaine, you're forgiven because it is that level of technical transcribing oh, accuracy fantastic. That, that makes it all worthwhile. Not fault. So, yeah. Yep. Steve, thanks so much. We'll be, uh, we do this show every uh, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800, I guess 1900 UTC because it's summertime. We're, out, we're not in summertime anymore. Uh, on twit.tv. You can watch live. Always fun. Uh, but if you don't get to or, you, you know, it's a bad time for you, please uh, download the podcast. We have audio and video available at twit.tv. You can even subscribe on iTunes or any podcast catcher, uh, downcast on the, on, uh, on the uh, iPod or iPhone or the iPad, I should say. Um, I use uh, Listen from Google on the uh, Android side, and they'll just subscribe, and you'll get them automatically, and you can listen to them, which is wonderful. Uh, Steve does have a version that's a little unusual. He has a 16-kilobit audio version. That's the smallest audio we make available for those of you who are bandwidth-impaired or throttled or whatever. And there's also those great transcripts from Elaine, all available at grc.com. That's where you should go if you want to uh, give Steve any feedback. He's got a form, grc.com slash feedback. Uh, you'll also find Spin right there, the world's finest hard drive utility, uh, as well as a lot of freebies because Steve is really good on just making stuff available for free. And finally, follow him on Twitter so that he can DM you. He's at... S-G-G-R-C if you want to follow him on Twitter. Steve, thank you so much. We'll uh, see you next week. Talk to you then, Leo. Security now.